This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Thousands of financial advisors, asset managers, and investors rely on YCharts to develop insights, make smarter investment decisions, and effectively communicate with prospects and clients. With industry-leading tools, you're empowered to create compelling visuals that emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies. For more information, start a free trial at YCharts.com or follow on Twitter at YCharts. Now, we hope you enjoy this episode of the 7 Investing Podcast. Hey everybody and welcome to today's edition of the 7 Investing Podcast. I'm Luke Hallard, Lead Advisor at 7 Investing, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations for our premium members and educational content that's freely available to everyone. I'm joined on the pod this week by Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen, better known to their listeners as The Investor Way, a weekly investing podcast focused on UK stocks and shares. Gents, welcome to 7investing. Thank you, Luke. Great to be here. Sam, you know, you and I connected on your own podcast about a month ago, and we ended up recording a two-part, nearly four-hour discussion on my own investing strategy, also digging into a bunch of companies I'm most excited about right now. It's a marathon listen, but I'm still kind of the new guy at 7investing, so if listeners would like to dig more into what makes me tick, I'd definitely recommend checking out those episodes or any of the other episodes where John and Sam do some really first-class analysis on both UK and international companies. Hey guys, I noticed you're actually up to episode 88 on the Investor Way at the moment. You know that's pretty lucky in Cantonese, but 88 is double money. Did you know that? (laughs) I didn't. You need need to be investing hard right now while you've got your 88 in the bag. (laughs) Right, it's a good time to do it at the minute. Well, hey, you guys are primarily a UK stocks podcast, but I know you also look at US companies. But for today's seven investing episode, we're going to focus on that non-US aspect and chat about a bunch of interesting companies that might be worth a look to a US investor who's looking to create a bit of international exposure in their portfolio. How's that sound to you both? Sounds good. Sounds good fun. Good stuff. Well, why don't we start off with a bit of an intro to you both, though. Do you want to share a bit of background on your current investing style, kind of who you are? Firstly, I, I work full time, so I've, I've got a pension. My pension's just set to invest in index funds. And I've worked that out so that if everything I do on my own is just an absolute zero, I'll still be okay with the pension. And then in terms of my individual portfolio, <laughs> I'm about 50% US listed, and that tends to be more growth focused just because of the type of companies that I look at. And then the other 50% is UK listed. And to your American investors, a lot of that would probably be classed as value, although I do like companies that grow generally. So I, I would still consider them growth, but they, they tend to be more value in terms of what you typically consider value and the valuations that they trade at definitely compared to US listed companies. And then on top of that, I've also got a small Bitcoin allocation. It's got to be nice having a bunch of value stocks in your portfolio right now. I guess they've held up a little bit better over the last six months. They have, yeah. The, the US side has been absolutely hammered, whereas the UK stocks yeah. were at quite low valuations to start with. So not much has happened on those. Sometimes uh, boring can be the best way forwards. Yeah, yeah, which is why I like to have that split as well. Just because you can, obviously, when one's bombing away, you can just focus on the other bit. How about yourself, John? I mean, I think my investing style has definitely changed over the years. When I first started investing, I got a small amount of money, didn't have any particular use for it at the time. 
but sort of essentially wanted to put it to work. So I went to, I suppose it was who we knew. So it was a, a stockbroker that the family had used for um, for a period of time. And they essentially took the money and bought five, ten blue chips uh, on the FTSE 100. Didn't really have very much input into it at the time. It was sort of, well, they're an expert. They know what to do with the money. After that money was invested and then you had, or I had these share certificates, I then became very interested in following the company, seeing how they were doing, reading the reports and took a much more active interest. And then I think it was around that point that I then got this extra interest. Well, how would I go about picking them? So I read, as with a lot of people, um, Ben Graham's The Intelligent Investor, um, which obviously is much more sort of, I suppose, value orientated. And then after that, chose a couple of stocks, sort of myself independently. That was a few years ago now. And I think I, I have changed as an investor. It's definitely gone more boring, I would say. I read some more investing literature. So uh, some of the classics like uh, Jack Bogle, uh, Common Sense Investing, um, and uh, Burton Malkiel. Um, and I adopted a more of an index approach. So I do have individual stocks in my portfolio. I do buy individual stocks still, but the bulk of uh, my investing now is into the FTSE or World Index. So it's a little bit less exciting from that perspective, but I think I still enjoy stock picking as a pastime. I just think it's so difficult to, to beat the index and working a busy job. I don't probably have the time to dedicate to researching a lot of stocks for, you know, for the whole portfolio. So that's what I've been doing for probably the last few years. Very good, John. It's interesting you say you don't feel you have the time to do the research because the sort of quantity and the quality of the investment research you both put out in your podcast is fantastic. <laughs> it's, you know, it's more than most professional investors would do, I think. Well, that's uh, very kind. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of our research, though, it's like we might only talk for a stock for five or 10 minutes on the podcast. And then for the prep, we might do 20 minutes each on a stock. So it's a very, very surface level view. So like, for example, like with a lot of the stocks John's got, it's like we've looked at them two or three times on the podcast before we thought, well, actually, we need to actually dig into that. It's quite good to go back and kind of remind yourself. And also the company evolves. So I guess you, each time you go and look at it, you learn a little bit more. Quite interesting way of building your conviction, perhaps before you put a toe in the water. Yeah, yeah. no, ab absolutely. And I think on the podcast that we've done as well, there are companies that you, you know, naturally you like and you have more of an affinity towards, but then there are companies that are reporting, you're producing the, the podcast every week. So there are companies that you essentially have to do, you're forced to do research on um, that you probably wouldn't have otherwise looked at. And that was where Airtel Africa, um, which I think Sam's got as a, a listed stock to discuss later, came from. Because we I don't think either of us would have ever looked at that if it hadn't been for the podcast. So, John, you say you used to have a family stockbroker. Do you think he's now a listener to the Investor Way? Uh, I, I doubt it, but you never know. He was, he was a, the, I suppose, how you imagine a traditional stockbroker, quite old, wore a suit, all, all, <laughs> all, all, all the rest of it. And yeah, had very good chat. And you definitely felt, yeah, inclined, whatever, your, you know, your mood was lifted and you were, you bought into the idea, you bought into whatever the sale was. And I, I think, to be fair to him, you know, I'm sure, did a good job, but it's um, very difficult to beat the market. And also, if you're a stockbroker, obviously, you're always inclined, you work on commissions, so you're going to be, it's always a good time to buy, it's always a good time to sell, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, have you had um, 
a lot of interactions, Luke, personally with um, sort of stockbrokers when you first started investing or? Uh, no, not really. Actually, I don't really think the incentives in that industry work. I think it's kind of broken incentives. And you sort of hinted at that with, yeah. you know, they're motivated to act. And my yeah. view is, you know, 99.9% of the time, the right thing to do is absolutely nothing when you're a long-term yeah. investor. Yeah. Agree. Agree. Yeah. So you guys, uh, you do the podcast as a bit of a team and at Seven Investing, you know, there's, we have seven lead advisors and we all collaborate, challenge each other. Do you think it's beneficial to have that sort of close conversation with a friend or a colleague for a constructive debate and challenge? How does that work for you both? I think it's definitely been beneficial for me, especially with, like, as you've heard with the previous question, John's style and portfolio is very different to mine. If I look at my own portfolio now, which is quite different before we actually started the podcast, but a lot of what I consider the highest quality investments in my portfolio. So for example, like Disney, it would be one where, despite the fact we've come at it from very different styles, we do see eye to eye and we, we can both recognize the quality of a business. I find as well that just generally just chatting stuff through, I, I can get quite blinkered when I when I get into something and I, I have a tendency to want to invest right away. Um, whereas, whereas John does pretty much say no to everything that I like initially. Um, so it does force me to be a bit more cautious. <laughs> I, I think probably for me, um, uh, maybe I come at it more from sort of valuation and a lot of what Sam does like uh, us or, or, or some of them certainly are very, very highly valued. And I get a bit nervous. So I think I reflect that to Sam and then he has to sort of justify why he is or why he is willing to pay so much more. Um, than I suppose what you might have traditionally thought of as like conventional multiples. And then for me, if I'm almost overly defensive, he will, he'll say, well, what, what, what are you doing this for? What's your time horizon like? Why are you being so defensive? Why don't you sort of push for sort of a bit more growth in your portfolio? So I, I think that sort of complements one another and sort of uh, maybe it sort of mediates, you know, Sam a little bit and um, and maybe makes me a little bit more, a little bit braver. And perhaps we get uh, better outcomes as a result of that. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, the wisdom of crowds, even if that's just a crowd of two. <laughs> a crowd of two, quite. Yeah. Yeah. And are there certain sectors or macro themes that you think you're both pretty well aligned on? I like the idea of a lot of the technology and I suppose a lot of what Sam invests in. Some of it is just, I'm not brave enough to pick those individual stocks. And Sam's critiqued my portfolio a little bit or said, well, you know, you've got, you hold the all world index and it sounds great, very diversified, but actually you've got 60%, maybe more in North America um, of that sort of all world index. And then you look in within North America and it's the index it works by market cap. So actually disproportionately you have those sort of fang stocks. And I sort of say back to him, well, I'm not almost not brave enough to pay up individually for certain things, but I do like that overall exposure. So I'm a bit, I'm brave through the index, but not, uh, not, not on an individual basis. But I think going back to it, tech is something that we probably do like, although, like I say, I, I don't sort of necessarily hold things individually. I feel like I have a good understanding of consumer goods, consumer discretionary sort of uh, stocks. So that's that does form part of my portfolio. Are there any ones that you like, Sam, would you say that I'm not so keen on? Yeah, a lot of the time, I think if we're talking about macro themes, a lot of the time I find that you do you do sort of get the theme and see where it's going. I think the issue is more picking the winners. So like an example that like when I was looking at the questions beforehand that sprung to mind mm. um, was like outsourcing. So companies like Upwork and Fiverr, 
Like when when we talk about it on the show, okay, John, absolutely, like you absolutely see it as a big industry. But you know, <laughs> but then going and paying, I mean, I know it's come down a lot, but even going and paying ten times sales for Fiverr, as big as you think the industry is, I just, I, I it, it's not so much that you don't agree with the macro theme; it's just that you wouldn't buy the businesses yeah. and try and pick a winner. I think the only macro theme I'd say where we are more aligned is, is possibly Bitcoin, where we we both view it as a hedge against inflation. Mm. Um, and a way to opt out of the devaluation of like sterling or dollars or whatever else. And we do both view it as like a different type of asset class and more akin to a commodity. So like we we do both view that as a way to try and balance a portfolio. So that's probably the closest one to a macro theme where we've actually both gone in on it. Yeah, with Bitcoin, I sort of saw that as I don't know whether you would call it a commodity or what 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 class of asset you'd you'd consider Bitcoin. Um, but I started allocating a little bit um, in a sort of dollar cost averaging way. So it just all of that now forms sort of part of the portfolio. Probably about fifteen percent. Wow, so that's actually quite a significant allocation. Yeah, with the way things have gone, um, with things being switched back on after COVID, geopolitical situation, not the Bitcoin, but the oil and the commodities index have gone up an awful lot, yeah. And what would you guys say is your biggest difference of opinion? <laughs> uh, absolutely oil and gas okay. so whenever we cover shell on the and in fairness this is one where so far john's been absolutely spot on with it and i've been absolutely wrong but we actually it's, it's a bit of a, a running joke on our show that we covered in the middle of lockdown we covered shell for the first time <laughs> it was putting out these terrible terrible figures and i was just saying well i think we've hit peak oil like no one's driving anywhere uh, and john's just sat there with it as his largest position and i, and I think you, you didn't quite <laughs> catch the bottom but you did top up and then equally we've covered it again now it's doing a lot lot better and it's a similar conversation where i'm just saying well it's a, it's a cyclical business i just think like mm. when are things going to be better for an oil company than right now so i would be taking that allocation down but then i never would have had it in the first place but that's one where we've got a very different view to that and i suppose i had my own biases when it came to it it was one of those stocks that nearly 10 years ago i got or well, sort of got it was bought I, I didn't have any sort of input really into getting it it was actually um a, a gas company that i had which was then taken over by shell but you got cash and you got some shell shares um, and then, yeah, I had topped her with it over the years. I suppose it's you can make money even if the industry that you're investing is is in structural decline. I, I'm not bullish really, really long term on oil, but I think it does have some way to run. And I think it was probably overdone, obviously cyclical. So when, you know, when the world economy is switched off, when you had a glut of oil, it's you know, it's not going to be worth anything. Um, but now that we've sort of switched back on, and there are other other factors too. Uh, but when the world economy is going, it's it is guzzling oil, and in those emerging markets, you feel that, that they are going to need to go through that same I suppose same transition that most of the, the West has or is is going through. I think longer term, I'd look be looking to get out of it because I, I appreciate it is sort of in, in structural decline. Um, but I think there's there is money to be made in it in the meantime. John, putting your uh, profits above the welfare of the world. Uh, well, <laughs> ethics aside, but uh, yeah, um, maybe maybe I should be switching it all into uh, Tesla shares. So. Yeah. But I think another one that we disagree on as well is the world index. We, we both do in indexing to some degree. John does it a lot more than me. But with my indexing style, I don't use the world index because I don't like 
that 60% allocation to the US, especially if, if you do think the next 50 years for the US aren't going to be as good as the last 50, would you want to go over 60% allocation? So with my indexing, I've just I've just picked five different index funds covering five different geographies. So I've got UK, Develop Europe, North America, Emerging Markets, and Asia Pacific. And I just go 20% in each of them, just because I don't want that much mm. exposure to the US in my index. On that, I suppose I think that if you look at the quality of the companies that are listed in the US, and certainly a lot of the, those big ones, they are the highest quality. So it doesn't worry me too much. And you do have decent exposure to other countries as well. I mean, UK is, doesn't form a large part of it. I think it's about 4 to 5%. Developed Europe is, excluding the UK, is probably about... 14% but you know give or take so I, th- I think you've, I think you've got a, a fair balance but um, in the rest of my portfolio I don't have a large exposure to the US anyway if that 60% in the world index is uh, that that personally doesn't worry me well we're going to talk about investing internationally on today's podcast and I guess seven investing primarily has a US audience what should a US investor be aware of if they're investing overseas perhaps particularly into the UK if you look at the UK market it is it's very different to the US in terms of the sectors we have very little tech in the UK. So that that's something that it's more an absence of it. Valuations tend to be quite a bit lower in the UK, which I think certainly from a, if you're a US investor looking to um, in, uh, invest in the UK is something that would be quite attractive. Quite a lot of maybe older industries. Um, so like Samson mentioned earlier, oil and gas make up a larger proportion of the, the main index in the UK, the FTSE 100. You have other sort of old world industries like you've got a larger uh, number of banks that form part of the uh, FTSE 100. Um, then you've got, yeah, I suppose brewers, tobacco companies, they're maybe less forward looking. I don't know that that could be a bit harsh. You've got quite a lot of yeah consumer staples in there too. Um, what would you say, Sam? I think the, well, firstly, I think like if you look at US companies, I think they've got a huge and very entrepreneurial domestic market. So if you get a company that's able to dominate in the US, I think they've got a pretty good chance if they take their products or service internationally. Whereas in the UK, it's a much smaller market. And although you do get a lot of excellent businesses, you tend to see, I think, a higher proportion of those. If they do go international, it's less likely to work. So for example, like Tesco and Domino's, I know they've got Domino's listed in the US, but there's a UK listed one as well. They're both fantastic businesses domestically. Both have tried expanding overseas and both of them massively didn't work. So I think the total addressable markets tend to be lower. And I think if you're factoring international growth in, you should probably be a lot more cautious if you're investing in a UK business. So another example is one that we both own is Rightmove. And that's that's a fantastic business. It's essentially a monopoly in the UK. If they said they were going to France, I would be concerned about that. Whereas, you know, I think if it was the US equivalent and they said, oh, well, we're going to Australia or something, you'd, you'd probably, you'd, you'd think that they'd have a much better chance of doing it. And I, I'd agree as well with the multiples as well. I think you, you tend to, if you look at a lot of UK listed companies and then compare them to their US peers. So for example, like the consumer goods companies or even like the, the tobacco companies, they the tobacco companies we've got in, in the UK, they trade at PEs of 10 or less, whereas in the US, they might be like 15, 16, for what are essentially the same, pretty much the same companies. But I think if you're buying them, the valuations are more attractive, but I'd just be cautious if you're a US investor. I wouldn't buy it and think, well, British American tobacco is at a PE of 10 and Philip Morris is at 18. 
so I'm going to wait for it to re-rate because you probably won't get that re-rating or certainly not anytime soon that I'd expect. I think something else sort of on that point, recently we've had a windfall tax on oil and gas companies um, in the UK. With things like that, you do get a bit more regulatory and government involvement in the private sector, which I think probably contributes to multiples of some UK listed companies being a bit lower than the US where there's a sort of lighter touch regulation. Um, so the businesses, I suppose, can uh, maybe reach their full potential sooner, which in the UK can, can be limited by those factors. Um, so I think that's probably something else to be aware of and to consider. Whereas I don't know much about US politics, but I can't imagine that Exxon's going to be having a big windfall tax slapped on it. So we've got it with the house builders too, and again, which is silly because we've we've got an undersupply of housing, and they've sla- slapped an extra tax on the house builders. I don't know any US house builders because I don't follow them, but you wouldn't expect them to be hit with an extra tax. All right, well, some good background there, and I think we've got a decent understanding of kind of where both of your thinking is. So let's dip into a couple of actual international stock investment ideas, and these are some companies you've picked out of your own portfolios. And maybe if you can just give seven investing listeners a bit of a flavor of what these companies are and why you like them. So I think, Sam, you're going to kick us off with Airtel Africa. It's one we both like, actually, but it's it's my largest holding. So it's it's a mobile p- phone provider. In, they operate in 14 African countries, listed on the FTSE. The second largest telecoms operation in Africa. They've got 128 million mobile subscribers, 46 million data subscribers, and 26 million Airtel money users. In terms of the the figures, last year revenue was up 21%, earnings per share was up 86%, operating free cash flow was up 40.5%, and average revenue per user was up 15.4%. And last year's not a one-off either. They only listed a few years ago, but it's it's been like this year after year. They've had 17 quarters of double-digit revenue and EBITDA margin growth. It's got a lot of demographic tailwinds just on the mobile data side. And then as well as that, it's got this this part of the business called Airtel Money. And what that is, is it's, it's almost a hybrid between PayPal and a traditional bank because a lot of Africans are underbanked. And that currently makes up 11.7% of the business, but it's growing at 35% a year. And it's already up to 64 billion of annual transaction value a year. So when you look at this operationally, it's a very, very good business. In terms of the demographics and the tailwinds, it's got a lot going for it. I also like the diversification of it in that where else would you have exposure to Africa in your portfolio, even if you have a world index or an index? Because there's so few listed stocks, it's very, very difficult. Even in an emerging markets index, there's very little exposure to Africa. And then as well as putting up these fantastic figures, if you look at the valuation, it yields 2.6% as a dividend and it trades at a PE of under 11. So yeah, so that's my two minute pitch on it. Sounds like you both agree on this one. Would anything you'd add to that, John? I mean, it does obviously come with its risks um, and where the sort of the countries that it operates in. And I think it was in the news, was it yesterday, Sam, uh, that I think they're in the Congo and they've slapped... $180 million tax of, of some form on all of the telecoms companies. And essentially, they're just going to have to pay up for it. I don't know how lawful it is, but it, it's one of those things. And I suppose it's the cost of operating in, um, in some emerging markets like that. It has great growth potential and it has been delivering on that, but it does, you know, come with its risks, which are probably reflected in that earnings multiple. Would you guys say that this is probably your strongest conviction stock that you you both kind of share your consensus on? 
that and Disney, but that's uh, probably <laughs> your US listeners are very familiar with that. There's a few others we both like, but yeah, I think we both like Air Africa a lot. Maybe we're going to get into one that uh, you're not such a fan of. I'm not sure, Sam, but John, you were going to give us an overview of your next stock. Yes. Um, so Unilever, it's a company that maybe US listeners haven't heard of. It was in the news a couple of years ago when um, Warren Buffett and Kraft Heinz tried to um, acquire it, but that was fleeting and it didn't it, it, it didn't happen. But you may be familiar with some of its brands, and it's got its consumer goods company with a lot of um, well, certainly in the UK, brands that dominate. There's Ben and Jerry's. It has Magnum ice cream, Hellman's mayonnaise, Dove soap products, Degree, Vaseline the uh, Dollar Shave Club. In the UK, certainly all household names, which people across the developed world are willing to pay a premium for. But there are also brands that people in the emerging markets like China and India, as the wealth in those countries grows, they have growing middle classes, and they're looking to buy those brands as well. So while it's quite a defensive company, that's really being sort of tested now when inflation is going up. And how much they can put up prices to to offset that. But it's also a company that I would see has future growth in it, particularly as it expands into those sort of less tapped markets, I suppose. It's one that I've had a stronger conviction, you know, in, in the past. I think management hasn't been doing such a good job recently of really unlocking the value in some of those brands. But interestingly, and this is only in the past few weeks, Nelson Peltz, the US investor has bought, I, I think I think with his company, bought about a billion pounds or maybe a bit more uh, of shares in Unilever and has got a seat on the board. So he, you would expect, is going to be agitating for change. So I think it's likely to be a more exciting year for or a couple of years for shareholders. The growth hasn't been, you know, what I think you'd hope for sort of high single digits from a business like this. And it's at the moment, it's only been sort of doing about, well, I think it was the, the last figure was about four and a half percent, but it does have those quality brands. And I think particularly if you compared Unilever with your sort of Procter and Gamble and Kraft Heinz, it's US equivalents, essentially, it, it doesn't trade for anywhere near as much. Um, so it's only on about 16 to 17 times earnings, and it's got a yield of about 4%. But I think if you can unlock the value in some of those brands, um, it's, it, it is potentially a value play, but it's got, yeah, um, a decent way to grow as well. So it, I think it would be one for US listeners to maybe take a look at. Pretty good. I guess you've both picked up there on two stocks that have pretty robust income aspects to them with sort 2.6% from Airtel and 4% from Unilever. I guess, Sam, you're, um, you're the third stock you're going to share. I'm guessing this one doesn't pay a dividend. Games Workshop. You'd actually be wrong. It pays 3.5% actually. No. Oh, yeah, games. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, right. So I'll jump into Games Workshop. So yeah, they make the the Warhammer figures. I, I don't know how big they are over in the US, but if, if you're not familiar with the miniature figures, you you might be familiar with some of the. They've got like the Total War Warhammer games, and they've done a few other computer games over the years. But they've got a very very fanatical customer base. It's all their own IP. They're not really beholden to anyone. And in terms of the performance of the business, it's just been fantastic. Um, so 2017 to 2021, if you look at those five years, revenue grew by 123%. Operating profit grew by 295%. Um, 
and they've not come out with the annual report yet for this year because, well, the year end's only just finished. But as at 31 May 2021, they had a total of 523 stores. Of those, 96 were UK, 142 were North America, which is tiny compared to the UK because obviously the UK is just a much smaller market. 113 Europe, 37 Australia, and just 22 in the whole of Asia. And I think if you look at how a lot of like luxury brands have gone over to Asia, I, I could see Warhammer being something that's actually very popular over there. And then I think they're only really, they're pretty saturated in the UK. They've probably exhausted the market for like geeky hobbyists that, that want to go and paint miniatures. Um, but in overseas, I, I don't think they have. And I think there's a lot they can do. And like I mentioned before, they've got the Total War games, but they're now starting to look much more seriously at licensing the IP. So you've got stuff like, you know, like television shows and films and stuff like that. And I think they've got a very, very, very strong universe. And I think there's a lot that they could do with that IP. And I think as well, like if you were to look at something like Formula One, where they've gone and I think if you look at how much Formula One's popularity has increased since Netflix did the Drive to Survive series, you almost get these Disney-esque benefits where one part of the business is making the other stronger and it just all feeds into itself. And I, I think you could get that on a smaller scale with Games Workshop. But then if you look at it, it's, it's a very, very small market cap. I've, I've not jotted it down actually, but I think it's two or three billion. It's something like that. So it's absolutely tiny. And then in terms of the valuation, despite all that growth, the PE is just 18 and you still get a yield of three and a half percent. Wow. I mean, it sounds like a really robust business. I'm, I'm shocked, actually. I was one of those geeky, long-haired uh, Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons players as a kid. Mm. I'm going to out myself on the podcast. And, uh, and actually, I've got a couple of buddies coming together in about a month's time and we might have a bit of a resurgence of the game just for one weekend only in London. I had no idea that the get that games workshop I used to go into as a kid is still going and it's such a robust business. It's absolutely fantastic. Honestly, I think if you look at the international, if you read through the annual report, I, I do feel like they are just getting started, especially with the Asia, because 22 stores in the whole of Asia is absolutely tiny. I love your reference to the sort of Disney-esque network effects there. That can be incredibly powerful accelerator for a brand that's got its toe in a couple of different areas we've talked about it on the show before and i said like if i was disney i would just buy it because it's so small that you can absorb it and I, I i think disney could actually do a very very good job with that ip um so if if i don't know i could make a i could pr make a proposal at the agm this year but i'd like to see disney actually i wouldn't like to see it but if you're disney i think it would be a good idea to buy games workshop it could be interesting right where um bezos has purchased the ip for the lord of the rings and now they're plowing you know almost a billion dollars into producing that tv show we're gonna hopefully see it later this year you know maybe there's a bit of a resurgence of uh uh, you know, that style of programming, perhaps that does make Games Workshop a bit more attractive target to Disney. Yeah, I think so. I think well, it, it's, it, the users are very, very fanatical. And I think if you look at the universe, it's the sort of stuff where like it would have quite a broad appeal. Very good. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely jumped up my radar of stocks to look at. So John, why don't you bring us back to something a bit more traditional? Then? Okay. What, have you, what have you got for a okay. fourth stock? Um, so I've got Diageo, a drinks company um, that probably most US listeners haven't heard of, but it's a brewer and distiller. You probably come across some of its um, some of its drinks. So it produces Guinness from its brewing division, and then in terms of distilling, it's got Smirnoff vodka, Johnny Walker whiskey, Captain Morgan spiced rum, Gordon's gin, Tanqueray, uh, Bailey's, Don Julio tequila. And many more, and it's actually the world's largest uh, distiller of Scotch whisky. Again, it's a it's a company that has lots of defensive qualities to it, with a portfolio of 
some of the strongest brands that are sold worldwide, which are delivering growth. It's largest source of revenue does come from the US. So it's, it's a company that's already operating there, but it's also growing rapidly in the emerging markets, which are certainly not saturated like the UK market might be. It's got really impressive margins. And despite people being more health conscious and drinking smaller amounts of alcohol, they've managed to adapt to this by selling more premium versions of their existing brands. And again, upping the margins even more. So I think that's really impressive but it is like for example in developed markets like the us is still growing and it only has four percent of the global spirits market so it's got a long way still to go it also is adapted to you know people drinking less uh, by having its alcohol free portfolio basically of those well-known brands but zero percent versions of it it's an extremely well-run company it makes smart acquisitions um there was aviation american gin which ryan reynolds had founded it bought um, a share of that and is integrating that into its portfolio. And I think also just going back to some of the, the defensive qualities, like with the Scotch whiskey, that's something that has very high barriers to entry. It takes a very long time to produce and it's essentially the market leader in that. So it's got the growth, but it's also yeah, got the defensive side to it. By UK standards, it's a fairly big company. It's got a market cap of around 80 billion pounds, which is about $98 billion dollars. And it, um, it has a yield of, I think, around 3%. I'm not sure exactly what the share price has been recently. I haven't, it's one of those companies that you can buy and you don't need to look at for a while. But again, I think by comparison, if you compared it with an equivalent US company, so maybe Brown Foreman, for example, Diageo would only trade at, say, 25 times earnings or thereabouts compared with nearly 40 for its US equivalent. So I think it's, it's one of those businesses that um, if you're a US investor, you might take a look at because it's globally diversified, very high quality, but quite a lot cheaper than the equivalent company in the States. And you, you dropped uh, Smirnoff's name in there. So you're saying I shouldn't be boycotting Smirnoff Vodka to try oh, and uh, protest the war. Okay, okay, okay. So <laughs> I, I, I suppose this is this is where the politics, it, maybe it becomes a little bit more controversial. If we if we recorded this yeah, more than six months ago, we might have been all right. Yeah, ho hopefully the whiskey can uh, make up for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's, uh, I think they'd like to think of themselves as, as apolitical a when, it, when it comes to some of these issues. Um, which is different to Ben and Jerry's, um, I, I would point out. But uh, yeah, um, a, no, a, a company that I have in my portfolio, and it, I think it's one of the ones, a bit like Unilever, that you can buy it, forget about it, and come back in 10 or 20 years, and you wouldn't have to worry too much, and you'd hope that there was a, a nice return waiting for you. And, you know, the opportunity to sort of consume the products of the companies that you Ooh, own. Is, is yeah, absolutely. I haven't been to an AGM, but I would hope that you might get some freebies there. <laughs> very good. Don't drive home. Yeah, don't drive home. Exactly. <laughs> or have a 0%. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. I, I was actually, I was shocked. My wife uh, picked up a bottle of 0% gin. It's good stuff. I was actually shocked at the price tag though. They almost oh, sell my for the same price. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I've had some of the 0%, both the Gordons and the Tankery. It's, it's very good and it, it, it tastes like the real deal. I find that you're drinking twice as much to get the flavor um, yes. and it's not half the price. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah you, you, pay, you pay a lot for it. I'm sure, I'm sure it's great for the margins. It's, it's, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sam, do you want to um, pick us up with our fifth and final stop for today? And I think this might be a bit of a controversial one between the two of you. Ooh. 
Yeah, so we we do have different views on this one. So this one's Hargreaves Lansdowne. So it's it's the UK's leading investment platform for stocks and shares. So it's where you'd go to buy the stocks and shares. They've got a 43% market cap in the direct consumer platform market, and they are absolutely dominant in the UK. They're, I think they're over like twice the size of the next next rival, I think. So they've got about 1.7 million customers. I think the next biggest, I want to say it's interactive investors, something like 400,000, 500,000 or something like that, but they, they are head and shoulders above the rest. They've got assets under administration of 141 billion as of 31 December 21. And that's more than doubled from five years ago, 1.69 million clients. And it, that compares to 878,000 five years ago. And the client retention is 92.1%. It's a very, very competitive market and they do charge quite high fees. That dominance and that growth hasn't necessarily translated through to revenue growth. So despite the doubling of the assets under administration and the doubling of the client numbers, revenue is only up by 63% in the last five years and operating profit by 39%. However, they are absolutely dominant. They are continuing to grow, although it's probably going to be a bit less now because that assets under administration, it gets a big boost when stock prices are going up because it can go up without you having to actually do anything or acquire new customers. I think they're the best platform. I think they're very easy to use. They've by far got the best support. If you go and use Free Trade or Trading212, if you actually have a problem and want to get them on the phone, good luck is all I would say. I think for anyone that's investing a significant amount of money, they're the obvious choice. If you've got someone that's got a couple of grand and doesn't want to pay the £10 fee, they can go to Free Trade. If you've got someone that say, like, I don't know, a partner in a law firm, they've got half a million quid they want to invest. They're going to go to Hargreaves because that's where everyone they speak to is already. So they do have a big network effect. They've A lot of people trust them. And as well, in the UK, we've not got as much of an investing culture in the US. We've got what's called ISAs, and they're basically, you, you can put 20 grand a year, so about $26,000 into an account. You can invest it in whatever you like, and the gains and the income from that is completely tax-free. There's different types of ISAs. The stocks and shares ISA market is a lot smaller than the cash ISA market, and they've now just started doing the cash ISAs. I think they're going to do very well in the cash ISAs based on how they've done on stocks and shares. And I think what's more is they'll probably be able to bring a lot of people into stocks and shares via the cash ISAs. In terms of the valuation, it's trading at a P of 13, and the yield is 4.8% now. Interesting. And I've, I've, I've seen the platform. I've got a family member who's got a Hargreaves Lansdowne account. I, I agree. It's like super easy to use. It's probably not for me for different reasons, but there's a lot to be said for just kind of keeping it simple and uh, making it very easy for your customers to engage with your product. Yeah. John doesn't share my view though, so I'm sure he's going to tell us why. Yeah. I, I think what I, I, I worry about with Hargreaves Lansdowne is not that I necessarily dislike the product. I don't use it, but I think that the platform is very expensive and correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, but I think it's 0.45% they charge on portfolios. Is it up to £250,000, which would be uh, over $300,000, which compared with a lot of platforms is very expensive. There's Robin Hood in the States, but we've got new platforms, essentially commission-free platforms coming through in the UK, um, which I think at the moment, you know, they're, they're not, not making profits, but maybe eventually they will. I fear that they would come in, eat up Hargreaves share. There are also um, bigger players, which, you know, maybe have um, 
more respectable or more established names like Vanguard that came to the UK a couple of years ago in a direct consumer um, sort of form. So obviously you've always been able to buy the Vanguard products on whichever stockbroking platform you've been on, but now they're doing direct consumer. So you can go onto the Vanguard website, you can buy the Vanguard funds, no fee there. And I think they charge 0.1%, um, so significantly less than Hargreaves. And there are lots of other platforms. I appreciate they're not as big, but I think while it's the market leader at the moment, um, essentially it's a, sort of a race to the bottom. I, I'm not convinced that uh, Hargreaves is going to be able to hold on to that position and make make the profits that it is at the moment. That would be my concern for it. I don't see how it sort of uh, differentiates itself at all. I suppose what you're hinting at is almost a, becoming a bit of a commodity market. That, Absolutely. That is, yeah. I, I would rebut that slightly in that the, the 0.5%, so that, 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 that is right, but that only applies to funds. And it's actually slightly more expensive if you invest like via a SIP or something. But if you're in an individual, like say stocks and shares, and you just buy individual companies, you'll pay the trading fee and that's basically it. I don't think you get hit by the 0.5% on individual stocks. In terms of the Vanguard and stuff coming in, they've been here for at least a couple of years now. There's been everyone else who's been coming in before that. You've got the free trades, the trading two on two. I do think the trading fee, so to, to make a trade, it's about £10 a trade. I think that will come under pressure. But I, I still think... You know, a lot of these competitors have been there for years and Hargreaves are still dominant. I just think as long as their assets under administration continues to go up, so it's currently 141 billion, there's going to be ways to monetize that. They might have to look at different ways of doing it. But if you look at how the business has evolved over the years and how it's grown, I think that management's shown that they will find ways to to monetize it. Very good. Well, that was the controversial one we wanted to end out with. <laughs> That was interesting. I think you've given seven investing listeners a couple of quite interesting international investment ideas. And certainly it sounds like you guys are most bullish about Airtel Africa and probably the most controversial one there, Hargreaves Lansdowne. But I notice all of those companies quite a strong income component. So particularly if you're looking for um, income or dividends in your portfolio, probably all five of these are worth a bit of a look. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think certainly uh, the the Unilever and Diageo, but I, I hadn't appreciated like, you how high the yield. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, no, but they are Sam. They're, they're less growth orientated. They are, um, but no, I, had, I hadn't appreciated with Games Workshop uh, how high the yield on that was. I, I thought it would be yeah, one percent or less. Well, if you guys are up for it, should we do a bit of a quick fire round? Because I've got a bunch of other companies <laughs> okay. I'd like to pitch for you, and then uh, see what you think. Now. I'm going to apologize to the guys from the Stock Club podcast because I've blatantly ripped off their episode they did with Beth Kindig, which is worth a listen. It's a fantastic episode, but I thought it was a really fun format and I thought I'd give it a go with you guys and see if we, uh, if we can all get to the winner of our uh, little stock playoff. Okay. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pitch two company names to you. You're going to tell me your favorite and let's say the best investment in your view over a five-year time frame. To keep it super simple, use your investing instincts, no justification, don't want any analysis, just kind of which one do you like best. And let's see if you can both agree, but if you disagree, I don't know, we'll figure it out as we go. So I've got 10 stock names for you and they're all pretty well-known companies that I'm fairly confident seven investing listeners will be familiar with. Oh, and by the way, they're all from your own podcast. I had to dig through those Ooh, 88 episodes. No pressure. Yeah. I'll kick us off with a, an interesting little matchup to start with. Aston Martin versus Beyond Meat. Oh. <laughs> Beyond Meat. 
Yeah, Beyond Meat, Beyond Meat. Very good. I used to own Beyond Meat myself. Okay. Here's a bit more of a traditional one, perhaps. Netflix versus Fiverr. Mm. Fiverr. Netflix. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Who, who had what there? So John had Netflix, Netflix. Sam had Fiverr. That's it. Okay. Uh, let's see if you agree about Lululemon versus Etsy. 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 Ah, oh, strong, strong uh, consistency there. And then this is probably perhaps one more for John. Shell versus GlaxoSmithKline. Shell. 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 Okay, Shell, clear winner. And then our last little matchup before we go into quarterfinals. <laughs> Dominoes, and I suppose, let's say the US listing of Dominoes versus Bumble. Dominoes. Ah, uh, so in the sort of, you know, the Netflix and chill, it's the, uh, the pizza <laughs> over the dating. All right. So let's take our, uh, let's take our stocks through to the next round. So I think in our next round, we've got Beyond Meat versus Etsy. 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 Wow. Okay. Doing good. Sorry, Beyond Meat. Um, <laughs> Shell versus Dominoes. Oh, I go Shell. Shell based on valuation, if it's US dominoes. Okay. All right. So, what we, and then, oh, and uh, let's, well, let's, uh, let's pitch you against each other. You have to come to a conclusion between you on Netflix versus Fiverr. Who's going to win over those two? I think, you see, I, because Netflix has earnings, um, I, I just think it's, it's a, well, it's not the only reason, but I find, yeah. Uh, Personally, I'd find it very difficult to pay up for five. I like the industry that it's in. Um, we'll give him Netflix. So. Go on, yeah. Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think that makes our, in our final, we've got Netflix, Etsy, and Shell. I think that's our last three. So would you, who's the winner out of those three, do you guys think? I would go for Etsy, which is, yeah, unusual for me. But I think, actually, I liked it as a business when we covered it on the podcast and its valuation now seems to be much more reasonable than it was maybe six months ago. I was sure that John was going to say Shell and we were going to have to argue it out. But yeah, I would no, also no, no, no. go for Etsy. <laughs> Shell is cheap though. I wouldn't, I don't, uh, you know, still got some conviction there. But. Excellent. So 10 interesting, somewhat controversial stocks, but between the two of you, I think we've arrived at Etsy being the winner. Yep. I'd agree. Agreed. Very good. Wait, a little sidebar question then. So I think we started the podcast and you guys said you were very bullish on Bitcoin, 15% Bitcoin allocation. So go on, let's do a final heads up. Bitcoin versus Etsy. You can only own one. And let's say you're all in for the next five years. 100%. Oh. <laughs> I would I'd go for Etsy because I, I would caveat that. In, in my, yeah, in my portfolio with it's the 15%, it's 15% commodities, which of which Bitcoin is a small, small amount. Are we, are we Etsy for the win? If I've got other stocks, I'd possibly go with Bitcoin just because it's a different type of asset. But if you're saying this is my whole portfolio, I would probably go with Etsy. Okay, we've got a clear winner then. Very good. I certainly don't recommend anybody goes all in on anything, whether it's a cryptocurrency a index or a, uh, a single company. But the winner of this little game was Etsy. Congratulations to that company. Well, I think we're coming towards the end of our episode. But before we do wrap up, Anything you chaps would like to uh, to tell listeners about the Investor Way or where listeners can find yourselves? Yeah, we, we do have a podcast that we do once a week. Occasionally, we've got a guest interview like when Luke came on a few weeks ago, uh, but usually it's just the two of us. 
we'll talk about six stocks a week. So we'll pick one US stock and the rest will be UK listed. So if you are interested in UK stocks, or you just want a bit of diversification outside of the US market, it's just the investor way. If you search that, I would hope we come up by now. But if we don't, we're on Twitter at TIW tweets, and that has a link to all our platforms anyway. I do recommend the podcast to seven investing listeners if you're looking for a bit of a flavor of what's happening outside of the US market. I think you guys have a really good little vibe. It's a good chat and it's a, it's a fun listen once a week. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Very good. Well, guys, that was a fun discussion. Thanks for making the time to share your perspective with seven investing listeners. Listeners, you have been listening to the Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our goal to empower you to invest in your future. If you want to know more, swing by seveninvesting.com slash subscribe to get a fantastic deal on your first month of membership and access to our deep repository of over a hundred stock recommendations deep dive videos and regular company updates well that's it for this week thanks to my guests sam and john and look forward to speaking to you all soon thanks a reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.